Let's pray. Father, our tendency is to want to fill holy space with words. So help us to fight that. Amen. Take your Bibles. Go with me to the book of James. Encourage your Bible to feel welcome to open to James anytime you walk in this building over the next, well, however long it's going to be, because we're going to start today with the book of James. A number of years ago, when I was having to prepare my first resume, uh, I got a little bit of coaching from my father, and after I typed up what I had, I took it to him and I asked him to read over it and to make changes and uh, basically edit it for me. And after he read it, which probably took him, because your resume gives all your accomplishments, it probably took him 10 seconds to read mine. And he said this to me in his truest old preacher King James language. He who tooteth not his own horn, the same shall not get tooted. Now, what that means in resume language is when you do a resume, it's a good idea to brag on yourself, but to do so in the most humble fashion, whatever that means and however that looks. I didn't realize it, but part of what he was telling me with that ended up being a good life lesson. I want you to take that scenario and let me just ask you today, if I were to ask you To write a spiritual resume, how would you do so? What are your best accomplishments as a Christian person? One of the things that I've had to make peace with in my life as the son of a pastor, and uh, my dad was a pastor for a long time, I had to make peace with the reality that uh, many times through the years, I was going to be called upon to be uh, interpreted personally through the ministry of my dad. In other words, there is this Rotrammel family name because I'm a pastor, but he was a pastor first. Uh, and the fact that we served at the same church probably uh, just kind of laid this a little more in my lap than I thought it would have ever been true. Um, but people would see me largely through him and his ministry. I found pretty early on that that was not something unique to me, that there are other people on a much grander scale, much more noteworthy people, much more famous people who are father-son minister combinations. For instance, I'll give you the name of the son, you give me the name of the father, Andy Stanley, Charles Stanley. Now, the first, church, first service knew totally who Charles Stanley was. Some of you are going, I don't know who that is. He's 9,700 years old, and, he, um, and his son has uh, 
become his own guy, his own minister. But when I was a youth minister working at the same uh, church where my dad was a youth minister, Andy was a youth minister at the church where his dad was pastor. I said both me and my dad were. My dad was never a youth minister, I can promise you that. Uh, So Andy Stanley was youth minister at his dad's church where his dad was pastor, same as me. How about another one? I'll give you the name of the son. You give me the name of the father. Franklin Graham. Some wannabe evangelist named Billy Graham is his father. You probably don't know another point of reference for me, but I'm going to use it because I want you to see the significance of this. Uh, One of my son's professors at South Texas School of Christian Studies uh, was a uh, fellow student of mine. Actually, he graduated just about the time I got on the scene at Truett Seminary, but uh, Doug Jackson is my son's professor. Uh, Doug Jackson is the son, a minister's son, by the way, he's a pastor in Corpus Christi for a number of years before he went on staff at that uh, school, but his father is Richard Jackson. And some of you will know Richard Jackson was the pastor at North Phoenix Baptist Church for many years, a very strong ministry there. He's noteworthy for me, not just because Doug is teaching my son, but because it was under Richard's preaching at Glorietta one year that God called me out of youth work into the pastoral preaching ministry. Here's what I want you to hear from all of that, not just the trivia of it, but I want you to hear that there are these pressures that we bring with us regarding the family name and upholding the family name. I can't tell you how many times through the 20 years I was on staff at the church. Ultimately, I served as pastor for 12 years, but my dad had been pastor before me. I can't tell you how many times I heard people in that church say these words. Well, your father would have never done it that way. My son has to live with that now because he's on staff at the same church. There's some pressure that's inherent in carrying the family name. So let me just bring it and drop it into your lap. How are you doing with carrying the family name? That is the name Christian. I don't think that it's an accident, historically speaking, or the role of the Holy Spirit involved in all of that, that early on in the history of the church, those people who were followers of Christ began to be called as a derogatory term first, Christian, little Christs. It's no uh, stretch for us. We, matter of fact, we find it written all over the pages of Scripture that when we come to know Christ, we are grafted in to the family of God. Through His sacrifice, we become children of God. And so by definition, we all carry the name of Christ with us. Now, in our nice, neat East Texas 21st century environment and culture, that's not a bad thing to be called after Christ. But you don't have to be a brain surgeon to, oh, and I see, I shouldn't say that's a political statement anymore. You don't have to be the smartest guy in the room to look at the culture around us and figure out that it's not necessarily popular to call yourself a Christian these days. So how do we respond to that? How are you doing in carrying the family name? Which brings us all to this passage. 
James chapter 1. Now we start today this series that we'll be following in these early services for the next handful of months, however long it turns out to be. Uh, But we're going to work our way through this little letter, the epistle of James. Now I'm going to say a couple of things on the front end. These, you know, these Intro sermons to a series are always the toughest because I've got to cover a few things and at the same time make it something that helps us as we walk out the door. So here's what I want you to get quickly from this. First of all, the chances are really strong that this letter, we call it the letter of James, the epistle of James, was probably a sermon first. In Paul's letters, we can go in and we can see where Paul follows this introductory salutation kind of thing, really formal or at least in keeping with the rhetoric of the day and the way they uh, wrote those letters back in that first century context. James doesn't necessarily follow that. And what we find with James is really more of a sermon. It's like he's just going to say, okay, let's talk today. Now, somewhere in the process, it got written down and it got spread out to all the churches of that particular area, and we'll talk about that here in just a second, but I'm going to call it a letter as we work through this, just because I don't want to have this whole discussion every time I mention it, but chances are good that James was giving this as a sermon, as one of those encouragements and exhortations at the same time. Well, what does he have to say? Well, look at how he starts it. James chapter 1 In verse 1, my task today is get through the whole first chapter, and I think I'll just settle on verse 1. What do you say? James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. How does he write his resume? And we're going to talk in just a few moments about the stuff that he could have put in there as far as tooting his own horn goes. But the word choice that James gives on the front end of this is instructive for us as we uncover who James really is. He says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me just stop for a second and let's draw this most obvious application here. One of the realities of our time, given the difficulties in the culture around us and and the cost that it puts on us sometimes to take a stand with Jesus Christ and identify ourselves as his children. One of the things that I find Christians regularly doing is running from the name. If I were to put you on the spot and say, how goes it for you? Here's our students down here. How goes it for you in the classroom? Are you happy to let your co-class members know that you stand for Jesus Christ? How about you on the job? Is it one of those things that you take in there with us? Not just the label, because in East Texas, not just East Texas, but Texas maybe, our, our portion of the Bible Belt or these portions of our whole world, there, there are those pockets where we are okay in identifying ourselves as Christian people. But Christian people tends to be more of a political statement anymore, it seems like. There are those circles In this world, let's take Syria and Iraq, for instance, where to identify as a follower of Jesus Christ means certain persecution, if not death. I kind of think that that persecution in a much lesser kind of intensity occurs even in East Texas. And so it's not that we reject and run from 
our Christian name. It's just that we dumb it down to a cultural label. In our world, it's easy to call yourself Christian. And in that context, on the political front, for instance, it means that you vote against abortion, and et cetera, et cetera. Surely Jesus died for more than just a political statement by us. So I want us to just kind of settle in first and own the terminology and own the space. I I ran from it. Maybe too much of my preaching comes from personal experience. Because when I stand up here, I always bring with me this long history in my life where I just ran from the label and the lifestyle Christian. Grew up in a pastor's home. It wasn't always that way. But my dad was a pastor from the time that I was in late elementary school all the way through until he retired. Um, And there was this stretch in my life where um, people would expect me, or at least I thought they were expecting me, to be like my dad because he was a preacher. My standard response to them was, look, just because he's a preacher doesn't mean I am, and then I would live my life so as to prove to them that I was no preacher. Don't you think God has a great sense of humor that he called me to do this? And I'm sure my kids went through some of the same thing. I ran from that. I did a great job in running from identifying fully with the cause of Christ. I think that we have churches in America today that are full of people just like that. We don't mind the cultural immersion of the church, but to live it out on the streets where it costs us something is a little too much to ask for some. James jumps into the mix. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And with this, James uses some terminology, I think, uh, that we should get. This term servant, I'm going to try to make this as quick as I can, but servant actually could mean four, or applied four different ways in the first century when James writes this. By the way, James probably writes this around 44 AD, some 10, 15 years after the death of Christ. This is probably the earliest book written in the entire New Testament. We find clear evidence that some of the other books in the New Testament, one of the epistles to Peter and some others here, clearly borrow from James and the thoughts that he has. This is groundbreaking stuff, the book of James. And James writes it from the standpoint of a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Interesting terminology. This servant could be one of four different deals. First of all, on the lowest end of the spectrum, this person, a slave, a servant, could work in the mines. Can you imagine any more difficult kind of labor with the rudimentary tools uh, that they had in those days to be stuck underground or out in the hillside digging and picking at rocks as a mine servant or slave? Nobody wanted to be that. The next level up from that would be an agricultural or a field kind of a servant. The better job, if you're going to have to be a slave at all in those days, was to be the house servant, the one who could help run the household of the master, but the best one would be to be an imperial kind, to live in the halls of power and work for your master who would have been some government leader or some moneyed person. 
four different levels across the spectrum. And James chooses a word that could apply on any of those levels. What does it mean to be a servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ? I think James wants us to see from the very outset before he even gets into all of those elements of what it means to be called Christian. All of those elements that will include some discussions about wisdom and some discussions about suffering and being persecuted because of the name. And some of those things that we're going to find as we work through James that makes it so appropriate for our day is this emphasis, this demand of Christian people for social justice. In our day and age, isn't it interesting that a country that is splitting at the seams and blowing up between those seams over social, racial issues, the church has been marginalized and has no voice. I think James would look at the times in America today and he would read the newspapers and hear the radio reports and blogs and hear the voices of those social activists of our day, and he might just say, where's the church? The study of the book of James is quite appropriate in our day. James, in the midst of that, would say to us as Christians, people who carry the name of Christ, who's your master? Who issues the orders of your life. It is a significant term. But back to the resume thing for James. Because all of that is important for us. He, he says, I'm a servant, I'm a slave. And he uses terminology in identifying his master that's nowhere else seen in the, in the New Testament. And, and I think the ESV captures the language here best when he says, I'm a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in that, don't miss the label that he gives to Christ. The Lord Jesus, the Christ, my master, Jesus, Messiah. James is writing to a Hebrew audience. This is not Paul writing to a Greco-Roman audience church in Ephesus or some other place like that. This is James writing to a group of Hebrew people who have been scattered out, the church, the Christians. And in that, James uses terminology, just stacks up these identifiers. You know why that's important? James is, do you know who James is? Now, we could look at several places in Scripture. There's four, five, six different people named James in the New Testament, but all indications are that this James is the same James from the book of Acts, from the book of 1 Corinthians. We're going to get there a little bit, but uh, this is the same James who, in fact, was the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you know why I say half-brother, right? Because he had a different father. Think about that for just a second. He who tooteth not his own horn, the same shall not get tooted. James could have justifiably started off this little letter 
with a resume statement that says, I claim something that none of the rest of you can. I come from my own authority as the brother of Jesus. Who knows Jesus better than me, James could have said. Let me just give you a little insight. I love my brother. Okay, My brother's two years older than I am. He's two times meaner than I am. Half as smart. A third good, as good looking. I hope he listens to this. I love my brother. He's been my hero for a long time. But I ain't calling him Lord for nobody's money. I'm certainly not going to call him Messiah. For nobody's money would I do that. Why would James refer to Jesus that way? It really, it's, he's referring to Jesus, but I want you to get, he's positioning himself under Jesus as Lord and Messiah. It's, it's not just that he says, Jesus is this. He positions himself underneath that. I love my brother, but I promise you, if he tells me to do something, we're going to have a showdown, me and my brother. You know why? Because he's not as smart as I am. I'm not doing what he says. He's probably smarter than I am, but I'm not ever going to admit that either. you got brothers and sisters, most of you. You know what I'm talking about. Your brother's an idiot, isn't he? Okay, ma'am, maybe not. One time, see, my brother, I don't have any confidence. Well, I didn't early on that my brother had my best interest at heart, not enough for me to follow him and be, you know, like let him call the shots in my life. You know, one time, my brother was in high school at the time, and he, one of his buddies had been teaching him martial arts, all right? So he'd come home and he'd practice on me because I was the only dummy around. I mean dummy in the realest sense because he said, let me show you what I learned today, and I'd stand there and let him do it to me. Dumb, dumb, dumb. One day, he learned how to do like a roundhouse kick, I think, or something like that. And so he'd stand right there, and so I stood right there, and here it comes, and I'm watching him go, wow, that's pretty, Wah! And about that time, he kicks me right in the chest, Knocks the air out of me, knocks the life out of me, and I'm laying on the ground. The next thing I remember, he's leaning over me going, Mark, don't tell mom. Don't tell mom. (laughs) Now, would you follow him if he was Lord and Master, if all he's worried about is saving his own skin? I love my brother. I'm not doing that. I I think it's significant for us. I, I don't want us to just skim over this as if it's some just limited to some introductory kind of a statement before he gets to the meat of the level of the, of the letter. Everything that James says in his letter after this hinges on how he views his brother. I don't believe James was always a believer. Matter of fact, I'm pretty sure of that. You remember that passage in the, one of the Gospels where... Jesus is teaching in this room, and they come in and they say to him, hey, your family's out here to get you. Um, Let me tell you, they weren't there to get Jesus to take him to lunch because they were proud of him. They thought he was nuts. Something happened in James' life to move him to the point to see his brother as Lord and Messiah. What a huge statement for a Jew to make. My brother is the Messiah. Look at 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 15. 
in verse 7. Actually, if you don't have that there, then we've got it for you overhead. We'll let you look at it. But in 1 Corinthians 15, I'm actually going to read from verse 3 on, but I really want you to listen to verse 7. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Now, this is Paul, and he's talking about the resurrection of Christ, and he's given something of this chronology, and he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were all still alive, although some have fallen asleep. And so what we find here is that Paul is making this argument of the incredible transforming power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's giving a historical chronology, and these are the people to whom Jesus appeared. And then now we get to verse 7, of all the strange places for James to surface. Verse 7, and then he appeared to James. And to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so what we find here is Paul, as he lays it out, is careful to highlight the fact that James, at a point in time when his brother, the resurrected Jesus, showed up. Let me tell you this. When Jesus shows up, the post-death the resurrected Jesus shows up, lives change. And we sang about that with reference to the Holy Spirit a few moments ago. What an awesome song. Not just a great performance of the song. They would hate it if I said performance, so you understand that. But the, the words of that are incredible. James is living proof that when Jesus shows up, the resurrected Jesus shows up, lives change including his. I had a discussion with a guy one time. Actually, the guy was my son. He's a youth minister, and he had been out at a church doing some things at a church, and he and I were talking about it later. It wasn't the church where he was serving. It was another one. And I said, so how did it go there? And he said, man, it's kind of ambivalent. And I I said, so what was the deal? He said, you know, here's, here's what I found in those people that I dealt with. Um, they knew about Jesus, but they'd never had an encounter with Jesus. What an indictment on Christian people that we might carry the name Jesus and even be able to write his story in our own words but not have an encounter with him. When Jesus shows up, lives change. So much so that James begins this letter, a servant. He could have said, a servant of my oldest brother. He just says, I'm content to say, a servant of my Messiah, Master, Divine Brother. I asked you when we started how your spiritual resume would go. Can you say that? Can you say that I met the living Lord and everything changed? 
There's more about James that I would like to get to here. We could go to Acts 15. I'm not going to take the time to do it now. But we could go on and we could find that this same James on his resume could not only say I was the brother of Jesus and that's my claim to fame. He could also say I am the leader of the early church in Jerusalem. We can substantiate that throughout the New Testament, the book of Acts, especially we find James at one of the most critical junctures of that early church when there was a doctrinal issue that had to be settled. James is the one who finally stands up and says, here's what we're going to do. James was the man early on. Before there was a Paul, there was a James. Throughout the course of this study, we will find that this guy named James, who identifies himself as nothing other than a servant of Jesus Christ, lays out truth for us that will challenge every fiber of every part of our being and how we live our lives each day. Here's what one guy said. I love the way he said it. So let me quote him, and then I'll draw this to a close. He says this, James wants those who profess to believe in Christ to be real disciples and to manifest living faith. And he wants to awaken people who complacently think that they are believers but do not act like believers. In other words, those who have deceived themselves. I'm going to put it in my terms. James is going to say to us that whole faith thing, that whole Christian thing, it has to work. Actually, what James is going to say to us is it does work. And if it doesn't work in your life, then something's wrong. Because real faith works. From this, I come back to the name Jesus in it all. James could have started off tooting his own horn. Instead, he elevates his brother, his Lord, his Savior, his God, named Jesus. You know that if our perception of Christ is limited to just a famous person of history, then we're going to treat him like he's Benjamin Franklin or somebody like that. In other words, if the only point of reference we have with Jesus is, oh yeah, I heard about him in Sunday school. Oh yeah, they talk about him at my church. Oh yeah, I don't even mind praying and using his name from time to time. But if the only point of reference we have with Jesus is some disconnected historical figure, then what we are certain to have is no power in our lives. But when we recognize that he is Lord and he is God and he is master, we will live our lives in focused holiness. Well, I got to tell you, seems like these days we spend an incredible amount of energy working sideways in the church. We're fighting this fire and putting out that fire and we're having to massage feelings over here and make sure so-and-so feels good about life over there. 
we treat Jesus like he's part of the furniture. When we get this servanthood thing right, the slave part, we're going to make an impression on this community and on this world. If we're not making an impression, maybe we don't have the servanthood right. Let's pray. So I end it the same way I started. In your spiritual resume, how do you self-identify? Lord, we ask you to take this message and drive it home in us. I pray in the lives of those who are here, those who hear this recorded somewhere, some distant point of the future, that you would give us the honesty and the courage to do personal business with you right this moment about how we see you. Help us to get it right. And instill in us a submission to who you are that drives us forward in obedience and make a difference in this community through us. And for those who just don't intend to do that, move them out of the way. In Jesus' name.